Let's open our Bibles this morning to Matthew's Gospel. Uh, You might want to have one finger in Matthew 21 and another finger in Daniel 9, because those are the two uh, chapters, uh, places that we're going to be looking at predominantly today. And uh, over the last few weeks, um, we have been talking about the parables of Matthew 13, and we're by no means done yet, and because of... uh, Easter Sunday being next Sunday, we're going to have to finish Matthew 13 the following week. But if you remember, Jesus spoke the parables in that chapter as a means of revealing mysteries to those who were believers in Jesus, but he also concealed the same thing for those who were unbelieving and those who had rejected Jesus in that crowd. And this place that we are currently in at Matthew 13 is pivotal in the life of Jesus uh, and the nation of Israel. And we saw in chapter 12 how the scribes and the Pharisees had rejected Christ, even going so far as to attribute the, his casting out of demons, they attributed it to um, the spirit of, of, of Satan working in Jesus. So that as a nation, uh, the religious leaders as a nation, they were rejecting him wholesale And so uh, as we've been looking at uh, chapters 12 and 13, we've been seeing this rejection of Christ. And we haven't gotten there yet, but even at the end of chapter 13, which we will get to a week from now, we'll see that Jesus went to Nazareth where he grew up, and even they rejected him. And it was the last time he would visit Nazareth, and they would reject him as well. And in fact, if you remember, it was at that time that Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. So Jesus, rejected by the religious leaders, rejected nationally. So by the time we get to chapter 21, which we're not going to get to for several handful of months, a few months going into the future, But it fits so well with what we are uh, talking about in Matthew 13, this whole idea of Jesus being rejected. Because when we look at Matthew 21, Jesus is going to ride on a donkey, not a horse, and we'll talk about that. He rode on a donkey from the Mount of Olives, going westward, uh, down through the Kidron Valley, up into Jerusalem. And he did it once, and he never, you know, he, he did this once, and it was a very specific day that he did this. But even so, Fulfilling prophecies in the process, Old Testament prophecies, the nation would still reject him. So you can see how, I don't think it's any coincidence, you know, as we've been looking at Matthew 12 and 13 and this whole idea of the rejection. And now finally, we celebrate today Palm Sunday. You know, so the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 11 is what we We'll look at today, um, as Jesus rode in on a donkey, we call it Palm Sunday because it's one of the most significant fulfillments of prophecy in all of the Bible, fulfilling, again, many Old Testament prophets. And so this event uh, occurred that we're reading about today, his triumphal entry, occurred one week prior to his crucifixion and, and specifically his resurrection. And we call it Palm Sunday because the believers, those who really believed in Jesus, and there was just a small number of them, they would put palm fronds and branches on the road as Jesus went into Jerusalem. And this was very common practice in ancient, uh, the Near East, uh, to 
for someone who was worthy or to bestow honor upon someone, they would put these branches or palm fronds in the path as they would go. And, and this is what happened. And even in the Greco-Roman culture of the time, the palm branch was a symbol of triumph. It was a symbol of victory. And the reason this event that we're looking at this morning is so significant is because it ties in to Daniel's uh, prophecy in chapter 9, specifically verses 24 through 27, which has been said to be the key to all end-time prophecy in the Bible. And it is. And we're going to look at it shortly. And if we do understand and properly interpret Daniel 9, it will serve as the backbone for all end-time prophecy. And you, you, most of you know this. Most of you have been really well taught, and this is the backbone of it. But it's the significance of the event is further underscored by the fact that all four Gospels record this event. In the Gospels, you, you remember, some uh, accounts would be recorded, and in other Gospels it wouldn't be there. But this one was so significant that all four of the Gospel writers included it in their in their uh, gospel message. And we'll see this morning that this was the first time, this was the first time that Jesus presented himself to the nation of Israel as their Messiah, as their king, because up to this point, he wouldn't have allowed it. He wouldn't have done it. And what does it tell us um, uh, in, John, in John chapter 6? After the miracle of feeding the 5,000, what does it say? Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force, and why? To make him king. He departed again to the mountain by himself alone. There was a right time that he would allow himself to be presented as the king of Israel and as the Messiah. And it wasn't then, but it is now, at this moment in history. In Matthew 21, at this time, when he would go in and present himself as their king, which is what Matthew's gospel is all about, to prove that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David, that he is the king. And it was this day, this very day, we commemorate what happened nearly 2,000 years ago when Jesus rode in on that donkey. And Jesus was entering in from that moment he, he rode in on the donkey in Jerusalem. He would fulfill a week's worth of time. We call it Holy Week. Because four days after he would ride into Jerusalem on the donkey, four days later he would be wrongfully arrested. And then he would be crucified. And then three days later he would rise again. And then he would be seen by thousands and hundreds until 40 days later he would ascend into heaven. So turn with me to Matthew 21. Let's take a look at it. Again, very significant chapter. Intensely prophetic. <laughs> Intensely, and you'll see why. For some of you, this is going to be a review. And for some of you, you've never heard this before, and it's going to blow your mind. And even as I review it, for those who have heard it, it should blow your mind as well. Just the, the accuracy of God's word. It's really, truly amazing. And, and, and God, see, he has an advantage. No other God, and I say lowercase g for all the other gods, but there is one God, Jehovah God, Jesus Christ. There's only one God who made all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He knows all things before it even occurs. So he has the one advantage. He's the only one who can write history in advance, and that's what we have, folks. 
He wrote it in advance for us. Why? So that we could be encouraged. Do you need some encouragement today? I need some encouragement today after the hell I went through this week, and you did too. The heartbreak, the just... I need some encouragement, God. And God wants to encourage you today. In fact, that's his whole heart. He's always wanting to encourage you. But notice what it says in the first verse of Matthew 21. It says, now when, now Jesus had just gone from Galilee, and now he's making his way up the road, and we take this road when we go to Jerusalem. It's all paved now, but back then it was just a dirt road. But we take this long, winding road all the way up to Mount Zion, up to where Jerusalem is. So when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And in Mark's gospel, it tells us that Jesus told them to go get this colt on which no one had sat before. You try sitting on an animal that's never been ridden before and see how well it goes. You're in for a wild ride. You ever seen those bronking, you know, those, those, in those places, you know, the mechanical bull or whatever? Yeah, not a good thing to ride an, an animal that's never been broken. But Jesus didn't have a problem. And the animal was very submissive and obedient. Isn't it funny how the animal kingdom can be obedient to God, but us people, rebels, rotten scoundrels. I I. I, I that sounds like me, so I'm going to include myself. But notice, and then he says to them, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And all this was done. Notice that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is an amazing prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. In fact, Zechariah was born in captivity when, in Babylon. He was born there, and he was a Levite, and he wrote this prophecy about 20 years after the fall of Babylon, some, five, some 520 years before it would even occur. He wrote this prophecy 550 years before it even occurred. And it was speaking of Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid. He would go into Jerusalem on a donkey. How, that's, that's a bizarre detail, wouldn't you say? And so this event that Jesus is about to accomplish was foretold in this Old Testament scriptures. Hundreds of years in advance. And yet the Jews at the time, they really didn't, realize it. Maybe some did, I don't know, but the vast majority did not. In fact, they probably all didn't realize. So the disciples went and they did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt. They laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And notice a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and they spread them on the road. So these multitudes were really pilgrims who probably came up from Galilee with him. 
And great kings, whenever they would come into a city, especially the home city, after they've conquered some land, what they would often do is come in on a very powerful horse, come in on a stallion with all of the the captives that they got from war, and they would bring them in uh, as captives, or they'd bring in the spoil from those cities that they had conquered. They would lead this great procession into their home city, and it would always be a stallion male horse just decked out with all the gear. Love that thought of it. I'll never forget we were at Sight and Sound and we went and seen Daniel a handful of years ago. And my wife and I were sitting there and I was sitting, I think I was sitting in an aisle seat and they were anticipating this Babylonian invasion. And if you've been to Sight and Sound, you know this, they actually had real horses Real stallions. I mean, I'm talking these percherons, you know, these horses with the big hooves. And I felt the earth, you know, the, the stadium or the thing that we were in start to shake. And I looked down and I'm seeing this, these horses all decked out in battle gear and they're running down the aisles. And I just happen to be on an aisle. I can feel the wind almost blowing me over as they're going. I'm like, man, if this thing loses its grip, the whole aisle of BC is going to be wiped out. You know, this aisle A is going to be toast. Most kings would come in on a horse, conquering general. But Jesus, he comes in on a donkey. And by doing this, what is he saying? He's a humble king. Yes, he's come not as a a conquering general at that time. He came to seek and to save the lost. He was a humble king, but he is going to come back. We know this in his second coming, and he's not going to be a humble king. He's going to come back as a conquering general to execute vengeance upon a world that has rejected him. Revelation 19 tells us, and it tells us that when when Christ returns physically to the earth, uh, John says, I saw heaven and and behold... uh, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and his eyes who sat on him was like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself, and he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. (laughs) And you read the rest of, of Revelation 19, he's coming for vengeance. When he comes back in his second coming, it's going to be a conqueror, one to dispel judgment. Yes, judgment is coming for the world. They don't like to hear that. Jesus came once, meek and mild, to save the lost on a donkey. But when he comes back next time, it's not going to be meek and mild. It's going to be fire and hell is going to break loose when he comes back. And aren't you glad, for those of you who are born again this morning, you'll be coming back with him. The Bible tells us that. In Jude and other places. You'll be coming back with him on white horses. I'm looking forward to that. I've already bought my spurs. (laughs) I've gone to gun shows and made sure I get those 44 mags like uh, Clint Eastwood has in the old westerns. I want one on each side. Even though I don't need them, it just feels better. (laughs) But we won't have to do anything because he's going to vanquish his enemies. And do you think God delights in the death of his enemies? He doesn't. But they have chosen to reject him, and he will come back that way. But not this time. He comes back as a meek and a, a meek ruler, a meek king, to seek and to save the lost. 
Notice back in our text, verse 9, it says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now this is a messianic title, and they, they share this, they, they shout out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as the pilgrims would go up to Jerusalem for the Passover, they would sing what we know as the Songs of Ascent. They're called the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 through 118. And when they sang this, they were singing Psalm 118. And it says this, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Who is it speaking of? It's speaking of Jesus. He's already anticipating his rejection. And this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And this is the day that the Lord has made. Isn't that interesting? They quote that psalm and they said in the the psalm, this is the day. Isn't that interesting? I don't even know if they were aware that this day that they were speaking of was the day, the day that the Lord had made. Now, chronologically, between verses 9 and 10, we have, and you can write this in your Bible between verses 9 and 10, write down this reference, Luke 19, verses 39 through 44. Luke 19, verses 39 through 44. And let me read that to you. Because this is what happened right after what I just read to you. So some of the Pharisees, they called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You know what they're saying about you. And and Jesus answered and said, I tell you that if these kept silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And I would have loved for them, for the stones to have cried out, just to blow their minds. Because if they would have kept quiet, those stones would be screaming out a choir and it would be the rock symphony. Now, as he drew near, notice this, very important in Luke's gospel. This is Luke's account of it. He says, now, as he drew near, he saw the city. He wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you. When your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Yes, Jesus was expecting them to know what that day when he rode in on was, the significance of that day. Now the events in verses 43 and 44 that we just read occurred in 70 A.D., when, when Titus and the Roman legions came and they destroyed Jerusalem and they dragged off uh, the stones, it says, there will not be left in you one stone upon another. And, I, and just to prove to you, there's a picture of myself in, two, in March of 2020 standing on those very rocks that fell in 70 AD when they scraped them right off the Temple Mount and they've been there ever since. I actually wasn't supposed to be there. It's cordoned off now. They don't want it probably for liability reasons, you know, in case I, you know, twist my ankle going through that, you know, I might be able to sue the Israeli government, but I wouldn't do that. But I wasn't supposed to be there. They, they got things around it now, so I was kind of bad. But anyway, so I got a picture, and those are the very things that the, when, they, when they tore the temple apart, the Romans, they had, they pushed these huge things with mules and other instruments that they had. They dragged them right off the temple mount. They've been sitting there for over 2,000 years. There they are, still there. Not one stone will be left upon another. 
Now let's go back to verse 41 again. It says, in this your day, Jesus was intimating that they should have known what this day was referring to. And this was a significant day for the Jewish people, and they didn't know it. Turn with me to Daniel uh, chapter 9, and we're going to look at um, a prophecy of Daniel, verses 24 through 27. Again, a very significant prophecy. Notice what it says in verse 24. It says, 70 weeks are determined for your people. So who is God speaking to? He's speaking to Daniel, and he's speaking about your people. Who are they? The Jews. And your holy city. What is the holy city? Well, it's Jerusalem. And to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Who is that going to be? You got it. Jesus Christ. And it goes on in verse 25 and it says, Know therefore, and here's the key to it, Know therefore and understand, Daniel, that from the... And remember, Daniel is in Babylon. Daniel is in Babylon for the 70-year captivity. He is there and God is giving him this. Bear that in mind. That from the going forth of the commandment, know therefore that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, who we know as Jesus, Mashiach Nagid, he's the only one, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, remember that, the street and the wall, even in troublesome times. So there was a command given. There will be a command, or there was a command given after the Jews had been taken captive for 70 years. Daniel was given the prophecy. The command would be very specific. Notice, to restore and build Jerusalem, the street and the wall. Pay notice to the specifics of that. So there would be seven weeks plus 62 weeks, which is a total of 69 weeks, right? We do the math. That's 69 weeks. But it's not speaking of 69 weeks of seven-day seven day weeks like we have. In the Bible, there's a, there's a lot of this that, that is shown. These are weeks of years. So one week is seven years. Follow me? 69 weeks of years between when this command would be given until Messiah the Prince. So this idea of weeks of years has precedence in the Bible. We see it uh, for the Sabbath of the land. They're to work the land seven years, and then it's supposed to have a Sabbath. It's, it's one week of time. It's a seven-year, it's a seven, you know, it's one week of years, seven years. But on the eighth, they're supposed to let it remain uh, fallow. The year of Jubilee, seven sevens, 49 years, follow me? After the 49th year, they would let the, captive, or let the slaves go or the, the servants, they would let them go. So let's do some math. So between this command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and we're going to get to that, its walls and its gates, until Messiah the Prince, there's 69 weeks of years. So how many days is that between that moment and this moment over here? From the command to restore and build Jerusalem, its gates and its walls, to when Jesus comes in. And for the first time, allowing himself to be heralded as the king. Now, I can't take credit for this. You know this. 
for those of you who don't, Sir Robert Anderson, who was an officer in the Scotland Yard back in the 19th century, he was the one who the Holy Spirit revealed this prophecy to. And it's one of the most significant prophecies, obviously, but he wrote it in a book called The Coming Prince. And it's a very interesting book. I'd encourage you to read it. So let's talk about God's prophetic calendar for a minute because this is important. Uh, Jewish and Babylonian calendars and many other calendars in that, in that area, they, went, uh, they based their months on 30-day months, and so 360-day years. That's the way they did it. And, and you can look in uh, examples like Revelation chapter 11, uh, verse 2 and 3, Revelation 12, 6, 13, verse 5. It talks about th- this, this whole idea of the 30-day month, and uh, it makes sense when you read those passages that that is what the Lord is thinking because that's the, that was their calendar at that time. So if we just do some quick math here and we look at the prophetic calendar of what uh, Daniel had spoken that these 69 weeks of years, what does that mean? So we have 69 weeks of years, times that by seven years, and then times that by 360 days in a year, you come to a total of 173,880 days. Remember that number, because God had told them seven years plus 62 years. Now, why seven and then 62? Conjecture, okay, but that seven years may have been from when the commandment was given until the city was restored. It could be that that was what it was referring to, but we can't be for sure about that. But either way, that was a significant event because they had come out from Babylon. They started rebuilding the temple and the walls and everything else, and it may have taken them um, that amount of time, 49 or 50 years to do that. So it could be that. So that is what God is thinking So what he's saying is, from the commandment when it was given until Messiah the Prince, there's going to be 173,880 days, specifically right on the money. Okay? (laughs) Now, we got to find out which command it was referring to, don't we? Because we got to put this in our Gregorian calendar now, right? Because God is telling us the exact amount of days, but now we got to fit it into what we know in our calendar. And so there's four decrees that were given um, during uh, Babylon's, or during Jews, uh, when the Jews were in Babylon for 70 years, and, and even afterwards, there were seven decrees that were given. The first one was Cyrus of Persia in 536 B.C. The next... Decree was given by Darius in 519 B.C. The third one was by Artaxerxes Longimanus in 458 B.C. And then finally, the fourth one, Artaxerxes Longimanus in 444-445 B.C. in that area. So let's take a look at these first four decrees and see which one fits specifically what we read in Daniel because it has to be something that talks about rebuilding and restoring or um, restoring the, 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 the city and the gates and the streets, even in troublous times. So we, let's just look at the first one. The first one is uh, Darius. Oop, I think I missed one here. The first one, I got these out of order, didn't I? Where'd it go? Well, let me just do this. <laughs> the first decree um, is uh, Cyrus of Persia in 536, and uh, it speaks of uh, rebuilding the temple. Okay, But notice Daniel's prophecy doesn't talk about the temple at all. Follow? 
So, but in Ezra, so could it be this one? Was this the decree? Well, let me just read the first four verses of Ezra, because that, that's what it refers to. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord of the mouth by the prophet Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord his God. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left at any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings, for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? A pagan king, letting them go now, all right, and, and incidentally, Cyrus, uh, God had mentioned Cyrus's name in the prophet Isaiah about 150 years before he was even born. And Isaiah, and then when he finds out that God had already written his record before he even did it, it blew his mind and it softened his heart. And so I think that could be part of the reason why he said, now that you know, uh, the Medes and the Persians had conquered Babylon, he wanted to send the Jews back. But notice, it was specifically about the temple itself. Not the city. It was just the temple. The temple is part of the city. And it doesn't talk about the gates. It doesn't talk about the streets. So it's a very limited thing. So it can't fit this prophecy or this decree, I should say. doesn't really fit Daniel's prophecy, does it? But what about the second one by Darius in 519? Um, uh, we're not going to read it for the sake of time, but in Ezra 5 uh, through six, chapter 6 through verse 12, it speaks of rebuilding the temple. And he reiterates uh, Cyrus's decree, but it's again about the temple. And what about the third decree? It was made by Artaxerxes in 458 BC. Ezra 7 records what this decree was. But again, the scope of this decree was provision for the priests, the sacrifices, the articles for the house of God. Follow me? But then, this fourth decree is quite different by Artaxerxes, Longimanus, the Persian king in 444-445 B.C., it's recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 2, and let me read it to you. So Nehemiah, remember, was one of the captives in Babylon at the time. And notice specific verses in Nehemiah speaking of the walls and the gates, exactly what Daniel had prophesied. Very specifically. In Nehemiah chapter 2, let me just read a handful of verses. So Nehemiah goes before King Artaxerxes, and it came to pass in the month of Nizon, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him. Nehemiah says that I took wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had never been sad in his presence before. Therefore the king said to me, Why is your face sad, Nehemiah, since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid, he said, and I said to the king, may the Lord king live for, or may, excuse me, not the Lord king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies waste and its gates are burning with fire? And then the king said to me, well, what do you want? And I love this Nehemiah prayer. I do this a lot. So I prayed to the God of heaven. So the king says, well, what is, it that, what is your request? 
And can you imagine? You're standing there before one of the most powerful men in the world, and in a moment, you're praying. You're saying, it probably went something like this. Help. God, help. Give me the right words to say. And then he says, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I might rebuild it. This pagan king, Cyrus, whose heart God had touched. Down in verse 11 of Nehemiah 2, it says this. So uh, Cyrus gives him all the things that he needs. He writes letters and and warns anybody who's messing with Nehemiah that they're going to be in big trouble if they mess with him. They send him away with all the money. and, and, And anybody else, if they need anything else, I want you and you and you and you, and I want you to help them do this thing and do it speedily. He warned them. His heart was on fire, Cyrus. Blown away by what God had spoken about him 150 years earlier, that he would do this very thing. I think that's pretty cool, don't you? So this is what Nehemiah said. So he finally gets to Jerusalem. It records in verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem, and, there were th- and I was there three days. And I arose in the night, and I was with a few men with me. I had a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gate which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Notice he talked about the gates. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool and there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up by night to the valley and I viewed the wall. He viewed the wall. And he's doing this all under the cover of night. He doesn't want anybody to understand what he's doing yet. He's just sizing up the whole thing. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. When I, then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. So now what we see here is the Lord was giving the Jews and us in the 20th century. And this, what I'm sharing with you wasn't known before the 20th century, folks. Like in the early 1900s, this was before that, it, this was all a mystery. So what is he doing? God has given us an equation. Remember back in Daniel, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until... Messiah the Prince. From this until this, from this time to this time, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, or 69 weeks of years, a total of 173,880 days. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublous times. So let me ask you a question. Which of those four decrees that we looked at Sounds like it fits this specific command to restore and build Jerusalem, the street and the wall. The fourth one. 
Very clear. You read those scripture references of the other three, and they don't add up. But this one hits it right on the nail. And the fourth one that we looked at in Nehemiah chapter 2. So then we have some other things to think about. So when was this fourth decree that we agreed on that really made sense to fulfill this scripture? When was that fourth decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem by Artaxerxes? When was that given? And a lot of painstaking work went into this uh, from Sir Robert Anderson and others, and the date of March 14th, 445 B.C. They know when that date happened. It was significant. So from this date, according to our Gregorian calendar, now remember, God's prophetic calendar just said 69 weeks of years times 7 times 360. We got the math. We got that, right? So if this is going to work, if God made it that simple, then we've got to fit that time frame. It's going to be the same. It's just our, how we've related to time is a little bit different. So we've got to figure this out. So if you take March 14th, 445 B.C., and you, uh, that, that, that decree that Artaxerxes Longimanus made, count forward 173,880 days, and what does that bring you to? It brings you to the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the very Day, April 6, 32 AD. Now, let's look at the math. Now, again, there's a couple of books I would really encourage you to get. If you really want to dig into this and look at it's pretty intensive. Believe me, this is not easy to share with a group because this is kind of technical stuff. And um, to kind of put it down in, as, as, as in a presentable form is very difficult. I've been doing it for a handful of years now, and every time it seems to get a little better. But I remember sharing this in Bulgaria uh, in Stara Zagora a handful of years ago, um, uh, back in 2015 or whatever. And, um, and, and, and Nikolai, who was a native Bulgarian, here I am in front of a, a, a Bulgarian church, and I'm sharing this stuff. <laughs> and I'm sharing some very technical stuff. And I look over at Nikolai, and I'm like, are you going to be able to interpret this? You know? And it was a really hard thing to do. But let's look at the math. So let's break it down just really quickly. This will be really simple. So from 445 B.C. to 32 A.D., you can do this if you want. Many have done this. It's 476 years. Now, take that 476 years, and because we live in a Gregorian calendar, or our calendar is based on that, times that by 365 days in a year, you get 173,740 days. Now, what is the number of days between March 14th and April 6th? It's another 24 days. And then you take into account the leap years, that's another 116 days, totaling 173,880 days. Does that blow your mind? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a mind snap. And I love the fact that God said it so eloquently and so simply for us to figure out. And it wouldn't be figured out until the 1900s. Until then, it was a mystery. Think about that. Jesus expected him Expected the Jews to know when he rode in on the donkey. Even in this your day, but now your house is left unto you desolate because you did not know the time of your visitation. The one time that he presented himself as king, as the Messiah. 
from that moment, from that decree, that fourth decree, 173,880 days later, 69 weeks of years, right to the very day, boom, he rides in on the donkey. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was fulfilling a very specific prophecy, and I'm willing to believe that most, if not all, were like they had no idea the significance They were certainly believers that believed in Jesus. They were excited about him going into the temple and riding. They understood the significance of the the palm fronds and him coming in on the donkey. I'm sure they got that. But did they really understand that they were fulfilling prophecy that that happened hundreds of years prior that had been prophesied? To the very day. Do you have any idea how long of a time that is? That's nuts. Do we serve an awesome God? Can we give him a round of applause? <laughs> that is what makes this day so significant. But it gets even better. Now, I do want to give a disclaimer here. The dates that I gave you up here were ones that uh, Sir Robert Anderson had devised through much study and tearing apart a lot of records, ancient records. But there is a handful of scholars and biblical experts in around 1975-ish in that area that have taken his work and taken it a little bit farther. And they have concluded that it's probably more like March 5th, 444 B.C., when that happened, and then March 30th, A.D. 33. But one thing, so it doesn't really matter, um, these dates, because when you're talking about all that data and all this stuff, it gets really tedious, But one thing they both agree on is this. Regardless of which set of dates you take, it doesn't really matter. What matters is they both counted from that decree that I had spoken of, the fourth one that we looked at, Nehemiah 2. They counted the very day from there. There was some disagreement about that, what the actual date was and the date when Jesus rode on the donkey. They still hold to the same thing. It's still 173,880 days. It doesn't matter which one you choose. So not a big deal. Not a big deal. But let's go on, just because we do have a few more minutes. Let's finish this. Now that, let me just say this. If I stopped right here, we could actually. But I want to finish this prophecy with you because I just want to tie this thing up in a nice little knot, a nice little bow. Because we talked about 69 weeks. Now notice what happens in verse 26 of Daniel. So what had just happened, him going into Jerusalem, that fulfilled that prophecy. Huge, huge. But notice, verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, and he's assuming the seven weeks have already, now he's saying after those 62 weeks, in other words, after the 69th week, Messiah shall be cut off. In the Hebrew, it means to be executed for a capital crime. So after the 62 weeks, meaning after Jesus rides in on the donkey, then he will be cut off, he will be killed, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Who was it that came against Jerusalem? It was the Romans. And the Bible makes it very clear. Notice, the people of the prince that shall come. We believe through other prophecies in the Bible that the Antichrist is going to be the, uh, the leader of the revived Roman Empire in the last days that we see forming right before our eyes, by the way. 
that he is going to um, the Romans came in 70 AD and they, they destroyed Jerusalem the people of the prince who is to come so the people are the Romans and the prince of those people is yet to be revealed in the future we know him as the man of sin who the Bible has a lot to speak about. So after the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, what this is saying is that, and, then, and it did happen, four days later, Jesus would be cut off, meaning he would be killed. Do you, everybody follow me? So after the triumphal entry, four days later, he was cut off. And it tells us after, the 62, after that 62 weeks, he would be cut off. He'd be killed. So this is 69 weeks. And we know what happens after the 69th week or, you know, uh, but what about the 70th week? That week is still, hasn't been completed yet. It's a week of years, a seven-year period. Remember when we were going through Revelation and we talked about the tribulation period? That is called Daniel's 70th week. It's a week of years, a seven-year period, and it is yet before us. And what has happened between this 69th week of years and the 70th week of years, or the 70th week, there's been a whole period of about over 2,000 years. That's the church age. That's when we were born, when the church was born on the day of Pentecost until the church is raptured. And what happens immediately after the rapture of the church? The seven-year tribulation begins, Daniel's 70th week, known also as the Jacob's trouble. Follow? That is Daniel's 70th week. That's where God is going to be pouring out his judgment on a world that has rejected him. And then what's, what terminates the end of that seven-year period, that 70th week of Daniel, that week of years, that seven-year period, what terminates that? Yes, the second coming physically with Christ to the earth, with all of us following him for the kingdom the millennial kingdom. There's going to be judgments, of course. We read about that. But from that moment and then for a thousand years, we will be on this earth in new bodies. Think about that. That's what makes this so significant. Now you can see why Daniel, and then let me just finish reading verse 27. And now notice what it says in 27. It says, then he, and this he is referring to is the antecedent of what was spoken of before. This one who is going to come, the, the prince that will come, is not speaking of Jesus, but it's speaking of the Antichrist. So it says, then he, and that he is speaking of this Antichrist. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the, and remember, one week, he's talking about a week of years, right? But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations... Uh, shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So what is this saying? In the middle of that, when the, Antichrist, when the church is removed and the Antichrist comes into his own, he is going to make a treaty with Israel to allow them to build their temple. Because in the middle of the seven-year period, right in the middle, he's going to interrupt their services. And in order to have a service, you need a temple. You need a temple to 
to interrupt the sacrifices. Follow me? He's going to allow them to, he's going to broker some deal to allow them to build their temple. And it tells us that in other scriptures. We don't have time to look at those. But he's going to broker that. And he's going to allow them to worship with a new temple on the Temple Mount. Let me ask you a question. Is there a temple in Jerusalem right now? No, there isn't. But there's coming one. Because when the church is removed, that temple is going to be built, and he's going to allow it to happen. But in the middle of that seven-year period, as we've seen in verse 27, the Antichrist is going to cease. He's going to be really great with them up until that point, but he's going to cause them to stop the sacrifices. He is going to put an image of himself on the altar. Follow? That's what that is talking about. In the middle of that three-year period, or that seven-year period, Daniel's 70th week, that is the pivotal point. And when that moment happens, Jesus says to the Jews, when you see these things happen, you better flee to the hills. Because persecution to the Jews, that from that moment onward, is going to be unlike anything that we've ever seen in our lifetime. The Holocaust in the in 1940s is going to look like child's play to what's coming for the Jewish people. Right? It's unfortunate. So Daniel 9.27 is the 70th week that is yet to be fulfilled. It's the time coming upon the earth called the Great Tribulation. It's called Jacob's Trouble, a time that individuals, a time that that individual whom the Apostle John calls the Antichrist will make a covenant with the Jews to rebuild their temple. But they will be interrupted in the middle of that temple. 1 John tells us in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Little children, the Apostle Paul, or excuse me, the Apostle John says this, Little children, it is the last hour. We are in the last days. We are, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. It's the last hour. Many antichrists have come. We've seen them. But there, do you notice how what John said there? He says, there are going to be many antichrists that will seek to deceive the church and Israel. But there is coming one. Specifically, he calls them the antichrist. It's a definite article. It's not a antichrist. It's the antichrist. But he says, there are also other antichrists who have come. We know some of them. People like David Koresh in the 20th century. Remember him in Waco, Texas? What about Jim Jones? What about uh, Moon over in, in uh, you know, there's many who have claimed to be Christ. And they were antichrists. The things that are happening right now in our world, many antichrists. Paving the way, preparing, preparing, preparing for when he will step on the scene. But we don't know who that person is because we're not going to be here to see it. I'm kind of glad. Because if he was, the church would be all up in arms, right? But there can't be any ripples in the water for his program. God's going to allow him his three and a half years of glory before he snuffs him out. He's going to have three and a half years, or three, three and a half years, to dominate the world 
And why is this so significant? Well, because everything that we're seeing going on in our country right now, in the world, not just the United States, is happening to plan. I say that to encourage you because it is very difficult to see what's happening. Wouldn't you agree? It makes no sense at all. Isaiah said that the time will come when they will call what is evil good and what is good evil. That's exactly what's happening. I mean, how, could you, how else can you explain what's happening? It's blatantly, blatantly wrong in every sense of the word. It is it's like complete lunacy. Those who are trying to destroy our country are saying, well, it's, it's to fight for democracy and, and all this. So it's like they don't understand that they're the antithesis of what our country was founded upon. And that's just the United States. But all of this is in a bigger bubble. And folks, can I tell you that Jesus is coming? We don't know the day or the hour, but you better get ready. Because things are happening at such an alarming rate. Are you ready for the king? Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. But he's coming for the church very soon. We don't know the time. There's a lot about this. And most of it's in Israel, the stuff that's happening over there. But are you ready for the Christ to come and for us to meet him in the air? Like it tells us in 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians 15. Where the dead in Christ will be raised, incorruptible. They will be given a new body and they will, be, they will rise first. And then we which who are alive and remain will be caught up. Harpazoed is the Greek term. We'll be snatched away. In the Latin it's rapio or raptus. We'll be snatched up off the earth. We will meet him in the air and forever we will be with the Lord. And what does the Bible tell us? Comfort one another with these words. I am so comforted by that. Now, if you're not comforted by that, you've got to ask the question, why? See, I'm not afraid of my body being transformed and taken out of here. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I don't have, there's nothing on this earth that holds me to terra firma. I'm looking forward. Now would be really good. I wish there was an app on my phone. I could just say, rapture now, and just hit the button, and I'm out of here, Scotty. <laughs> I wish there was. Beat me up. I loved it. Yes, and it is. I'm, I, people say, well, your whole Christian thing is just your vice. Yeah, it is. It is my vice. And I'm not ashamed to say I want to escape. But, yes, I do want to escape, but I also want to be sober, right? Because if I believe that Christ can come at any moment, and he can, and folks, let me tell you, more than any other time in history, the pieces are aligning. Amen. The pieces of the puzzle are going like this, and it's driving all of us nuts because all we see is chaos, but God's going, oh, don't worry, I got it covered. You're going to go through some difficulties, but I've got it all planned out, folks, and you've got nothing to worry about. Just keep your nose in the book and trust me in the process, and you're going to see the process take place. It is taking place right now. The world is being conditioned for something, and you and I are his. We belong to him. And I would encourage you, if you don't know Christ today, today is a really great day to give your heart to Jesus. Not because I've scared the daylights out of you, but you know what? Let me be honest with you. Somebody told me 
Somebody scared the daylights out of me. God can use it. I was scared to death when somebody told me that because of the sin that I was doing, the man who led me to Christ convicted my heart so deeply. I knew I was going to hell. And he says, Rob, these things that I know about you, that alone will send you to hell. And here's where it is in the Bible. And I'm shaken. And I give my heart to Christ and I felt the experience, the forgiveness of an almighty God. And folks, listen to me. As dark as the world is getting and as unraveled as we can become, because it's not easy to go through even though we know what's coming. It's still hard, isn't it? Believe me, my heart is... uh, I'm, I'm privileged to live in a time where I feel like I'm alive because one day I'm crying and the next day I'm rejoicing. That happened this week. Within 24 hours, I'm at the depths and then I'm at the heights all in 24 hours. How is that? God is in control. He knows what he's doing and you've got nothing to fear if you are in Christ. If you are not in Christ and you have every reason to fear, and I mean that in all sense of the, of the word, Because Almighty God is an everlasting God. He is an Almighty God. He's a consuming fire. As great as His love is, as great as His vengeance is as well. And He will love you right to the end. And when you finally reject Him, whenever that is, people reject Him all the time. They take their last breath and they've rejected Him to the end. They will stand before a God who will send them into outer darkness, into the lake of fire forever, in a resurrected body that can withstand the flames of Gehenna. But do you think that God wants that? No. That's your choice. That's your choice. And you have a choice today to make. Are you going to, based on the evidence that we've seen, and this is just one part of it, how glorious is it? Do you know how much Jesus loves you? He loves you. I'll use the cliche, he loves you this much. Because he put his hands out on the cross And he took the punishment for your sin and for my sin. And if we believe in him, we will not perish but have what? Everlasting life. Do you want that everlasting life? It starts the moment you give your heart to Christ. Will you give your heart to Christ? Why are you waiting? There are some here, some listening, or some will be listening later. You need to do it today. There is not a time where you can just say, I'm not going to do it. I'll do it wait, when, I, you know, when, I, when I retire and I go to Florida and play golf. I'll do it somewhere down that road. You know? I'll do it when I'm on my sickbed. Well, you don't have that guarantee. You don't have the guarantee. You don't know what's going to happen when you leave this place. You could choke on a hot dog out in the fellowship hall. Hopefully you won't. I don't know, if, I don't know what we're having out there, but hopefully something better than hot dogs. Nothing, be- nothing, nothing wrong with hot dogs. But folks, you know what? It, it, it's time, you know, let God love you and, and take him seriously and, and, and also, you know, as believers, you don't have anything to worry about. But as believers, let's get in the game again. Because, folks, we're coming to the end. God is wrapping it all up. It's, it's so apparent to me. 
And it's not just me. I'm talking to a lot of other pastors that I know, men that I respect who are older than me, been in the, in the game a lot longer than I have, and they are all of the same accord. They're like, we don't know what's, we can see it all happening and something is about to happen. We have no idea when it's going to be, but it's all coming to pass. It's all the jigsaw puzzle is coming into pieces, are coming into formation and, and creating this tapestry. And I can't wait for the last piece. Are you looking forward to seeing Jesus? Do you know that he loves you with abandonment? Do you know he literally did everything he could to to secure you in heaven? He did everything. He even gave his own life. He left heaven and came down to this earth and died a sinner's death for you and I. That's how much he loved you and me. That's how much he loves you and me. Be encouraged. Don't let the world get you down, even though it is a bummer and it is a drag, and don't watch the news because it'll just tear your heart apart even further. But if you do, remember Christ. Remember what we just shared today. Remember the Word of God. He knows the end from the beginning. He's got it all covered. Will you trust in Him today? Trust Him more, Christian. And if you're an unbeliever today, I'm so glad you're here. If you don't know Jesus, make today the day. And we would be delighted to pray with you. Come on down after the service is over. We'd be delighted to pray with you. Receive Jesus Christ. He's the best. He's the greatest. And no one, no one can push him off of his mountain. He created the mountain. Amen? Let's stand. Love it. Don't you just love it? Don't you just want to go out and like run a marathon and then collapse? Just excited. Excited. Oh, Father, we just thank you so much for today. Thank you for what this day means. And thank you, Lord, for what you have done to secure us into your fold, Lord. We are your sheep. Lord, we are your sheep. And so, Lord, we just give our hearts to you now. And Lord, for those of us who have known you for some time, Lord, enrich us even greater and and give us a bigger heart and, and, and help us to be more obedient. Lord, give us more of your spirit. Open our eyes and our hearts even bigger than what they are. Help us to rely on you more. And Father, for those who don't, may today be the day of salvation for them, Lord. It's the only way. There is no one who can get to the Father except through you. You are the way, the truth, and the life, the almighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace in whose name we pray, amen.